Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building communities through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Edward Field, a 95-year-old gay veteran World War II navigator. When I first interviewed Edward, he told us about how, after World War II began, he signed up for the Army in 1942 and almost immediately ended up in a love affair with his barracks sergeant in Oklahoma City. The rest of Edward's time in the war, particularly in Europe, is equally fascinating. I'd like to take up today where we left off then. My airfield was in the Midlands in England. And when the war ended, we were reassigned to south of France to ferry American GIs back home because there was a tremendous call, bring the boys back. The minute the war ended, they started Everybody, the pressure on the congressman was tremendous. And so we were supposed to ferry American GIs from Europe back to Casablanca on their first stage on the way home. At Casablanca, another plane would take them across the Atlantic. And so my whole air base was moved to the south of France, uh, not far from Marseille, and I took one. Fl- I had one flight of ferrying GIs to Casablanca, and then I was picked out mysteriously by top brass to fly as a navigator in a small plane that would ferry top brass around Europe to different places. It's quite mysterious how I was picked out. I always felt it was a gay somebody spotted me in the high ranks. I was chosen for this job. And we used to fly brass to Frankfurt, Paris, London. And so I got to fly pretty much all over Western Europe. We spoke about your time doing that in in the first episode. Oh, we did. Yeah, so now I'm wondering how you got from there back to the U.S. By December, my number, you had a kind of a number that gave you priority to get sent home. And by December, my number came up and I was sent on an aircraft carrier back to the States. Where did you arrive back here? Somewhere in in the metropolitan area. But uh, I was at an airfield in New Jersey when they actually discharged me. And then what did you do? Then I went back home to Lindbergh, Long Island, and I was a little boy again at my parents' I had been through this extraordinary experience of the war, and there I was, a kid, a child. I really should have gotten my discharge in Europe and gone to the Sorbonne on the GI Bill, but I didn't really have that kind of independence. I felt, oh, we've got to go home again. They're all waiting for us. They're waiting for us. So I went home, and of course it was a big letdown. I did enroll at NYU, and I started going to New York on the train, just like my father commuting to work. It was really no life. And I even had to go back to the School of Commerce, where I'd been enrolled before the war, before I enlisted. And I wasn't interested in becoming an advertising man. If if you wanted to study advertising, it was called merchandising, I think. Anyway, I was 
enrolled in this business program, which I had no interest in. I wanted to be in the School of Arts and Science at Washington Square College, which was also on Washington Square. The wonderful thing was that it was in the village, and I started getting to know people in the village. And gradually, I was taking courses at the School of Arts and Sciences and meeting people more like myself, except they were much younger because I had been through the war, so I was an old guy. Well, how old were you at that time? I was 20, 21, I can remember. And they were all uh, just graduating high school, 17, 18. So they were really very inexperienced. But I did meet very interesting people. The main one I met in the NYU cafeteria crowd that I hung out in was Alfred Chester, a serious writer. He was really freaky because he had lost his hair as a kid from scarlet fever or something, and the family put a wig on him, and it was an orange wig. So he looked really freaky, but he was brilliant. And getting to know him there was one of the main advantages. Well, you uh, told me before we started the interview today that, in fact, something happened to you during the war led you to realize you wanted to enter a field that you might not have expected. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, when I was a soldier, getting on a train across the country, all the troops were filing on the train. A Red Cross worker was handing out care packages, toothbrush, toothpaste, uh, you know, that sort of thing that you might need on a three-day trip across the country because very often we were stranded on sidings while the main trains went by. And in my care package was a book of poetry, a Louis Untermeyer anthology of English, great English poetry. And I read it the whole three days. All my life I'd been asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I never had the least idea. Suddenly, reading this book of poetry, I knew I wanted to be a poet. It was something nobody else would ever want to be. I'd never heard of anybody becoming a poet. I knew when I got off that train what my future was going to be. What was it about the poetry that spoke to you? I don't know. Poetry speaks to a part of your, your body. There's something in your body where the speech comes out. And so I did drop out of NYU to go to Paris to become a poet. And how old were you then? I guess I was 21. The, luckily, at that time, they had been reconditioning military transport for civilians. And there were these boats going to France. I jumped on one, and we were seated in the dining room alphabetically. And my name, Field, the next name after it was Friend. And Robert Friend was a published poet, and he was sitting next to me at dinner, at all the meals. Totally by chance. It was incredible. So the Red Cross lady gave me the book of poetry, and now I have met a real poet. I tried to write poetry in the interim, well, when I was back home, and I tried to write, but you really, I couldn't do it. It wasn't anything that made sense. So when, when I met him, we landed in France together and we got, we lived in Paris at the same time. And every day we met at a 
certain cafe where he showed me what he was writing. And him showing me what he was writing taught me how to write poetry because I never understood the, the, the procedure. You have to work at it. And he showed me how you work at it, how you change the words. You're not satisfied. You keep working on it. You don't give it up. You don't write it down. Oh, I've expressed my feelings. That's not poetry. Showed me how to write poetry, and that changed my life. How long did you spend in Paris? With he him? was there for months while I was there. And he finally ran out of money, and he got a job teaching American soldiers in the Army of Occupation in Germany. So he was in Munich. And I went off to Greece where I met another tremendous influence, Constantine Cavafy, the Greek, the gay Greek poet. He was the only one who wrote about sex. He wrote about his lovers in his poetry. He was an, he's an incredible poet, and he influenced me forever. And he used the normal, the ordinary language of speech that we use, the kind of words my mother would speak even though she was an immigrant. She spoke a simple English from the heart. He wrote that way. Did he write in English or in Greek? No, in Greek, but of course I read translations sure. until I did go to Greece and I learned Greek and I could read them in Greek. His language was always comprehensible to me in Greek and English. So you spent, what, maybe a summer with him? I spent uh, the summer in Greek. He was already dead. But, uh, he was already he was, he was not alive. He had died at 31. He was a famous Greek poet, but he had died. I'm trying to understand how you could spend time with him if he was dead. I had the, the books. Oh, <laughs> you never met him? Though. No, never. Oh, okay. But I did hear about him, and he never published a book in his lifetime. He would send copies of his poems to all of his friends. Of course, these were all gay men. Right. And they would collect his poems in folders. And that was his collected works. So you got exposed to a network of people that you met. I met people who worshipped him. I, I immediately met a gay hairdresser who worshipped him. And so I got to know one of the great influences in my, my life. So then what... And then when my run, money ran out, the embassy, the American embassy, got me up on got me on an American freighter going home to the States. So I went back home. And I very quickly moved to New York this time. I had a place to live. And I started my New York life. How did you afford that? It was very cheap to live in New York at that time. My rent was $18 a month. There was no heat, of course. But I, I could get little jobs and I could afford it. I remember I got a job as a warehouse worker, and I guess I earned $20 a week or so, but that was enough to live on. And this is, when are we talking about, 1940? 1950. But it was very difficult. I'd been writing poetry in Europe devotedly, and here I was in New York, and it was so difficult to write. I, in Paris, I always wrote in a cafe. I felt wonderful doing it. And in New York, it was by myself in my room. 
And that's a very different thing. And I wasn't good at it, having to get jobs. And I really didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't see how I could go on. So it took me about two years before I said, I really need to go to a therapist. And back then, you had a choice of therapy. Of course, I couldn't afford it. My father would pay for it. I couldn't afford psychoanalysis, which, of course, I believed in, because Freud was like Karl Marx. You automatically believed in him. And so, of course, I wanted to go into psychoanalysis, and I found an analyst who had groups. So for $7 a week, you could go to two meetings with him, and in between, we met ourselves. So I went like five days a week to this psycho, psychoanalytic therapy. And I didn't realize when I went in that I would have to change from gay to straight. It was really the kind of, um, what do they call it now, uh, re-education? No, uh, they have a word for changing. Conversion. Conversion. It was conversion therapy, but on a very high class level. Well, because at the time, the prevailing notion was that being homosexual was aberrant, right? Was yes, it, it was. But of course, New York was a gay city. Right. You, you could walk out on the streets and pick somebody up. I never had trouble having sex here. It was the most openly gay place you could be. And the village was even gayer. The villages where gays came from all over the country to be gay because they couldn't be gay at home. So the therapy did throw me for a loop, I must say. Let me see see if I can level set this for listeners. On the one hand, you're trying to start your poetry career. You're struggling with it, but but making some progress. You're working jobs to pay for it. Your parents are paying for therapy. You're actively having sex at night in the parks or wherever. Everywhere. Because you weren't a bar person, as you told me privately. Yeah, I would go to bars. Mostly I would just go into a park at night and there'd be guys looking for sex. But you were taught to feel that something was wrong in this. And so not making enough headway in your career, not having a lot of money, feeling that you needed to change, you began therapy. And the point of that was ostensibly to convert to being straight. It turned out that I was expected to change, to convert, right. And the theory being, since Freud developed his Oedipus complex theory, in which everybody, in order to mature sexually, every guy goes through a procedure of killing his father to marry his mother. In other words, you have to go through this maturing process where you you compete with your father and oh it really sounds so ridiculous even talking about it and how women accepted this kill your father to marry your mother it doesn't really make sense but it made sense back then i mean when you think about it it's unbelievable we believe this nonsense and of course the village went even further because the big shot in the village was Wilhelm Reich, who believed that all neurosis was in the body. So you had to work on your body to um, to do this conversion. <laughs> it was very complex. One of the things they did want you to do was to make a living so you could afford an apartment and have a girlfriend. That was the procedure. And I really didn't make any money at my little jobs. And even I was living at home for part of the time because I couldn't afford an apartment. 
So the analyst said to me, why don't you write prose? Meaning I could make a living that way. And poetry would never make any money. And I had no degree to get a college teaching job or any kind of job. So when he said that, I stood up and said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. Because if he didn't believe in me as a poet, I didn't care anything about him. So I left therapy. And very shortly after, I became an actor because I thought, well, what can I do? I can't sell my book of poems, having trouble writing. I got to do something. And so I thought, well, I'll become an actor. Did you get jobs as an actor? New York was full of people coming to New York to become get on Broadway. There was no off-Broadway at the time, but uh, there was a lot of little theater. And so I became an actor. I went to study with a method teacher, Madame Solovyova, who came from, the, from Russia, who had been in the Michael Chekhov company. That's the second company of the Stanislavsky Theater in Moscow. And I studied method acting, and I made the rounds, and I had a wonderful life for about five years as an actor. I played in some theater. I went to another therapist, of course. Did you give up your poetry for that period? No, but it was sort of going along with it. It filled up my life, because poetry doesn't fill up your life. It's not a social world. I didn't know a lot of poets, and I, I knew the literary scene in New York, and I did finally, in 1958, I was given a reading at the Poetry Center at the YMHA for emerging poets, three new poets. So let's just talk a little bit about, before we kind of step into what happened to you in 1959, let's just talk a little bit about the changing environment for being gay from the late 40s and early 50s when it was happening everywhere to when... McCarthyism and homophobia became rampant in yes. the mid-50s. Yes. How did that affect you in New York? Well, part of the, the movement to change from gay to straight in the therapy world was that homosexuals were being persecuted, fired from jobs. It was really quite difficult. Though in New York, you could be gay openly. It didn't make any difference. And the village, of course, was totally open. But still, the atmosphere in the country was very hostile. So... I was getting more courage throughout the 50s in spite of the witch hunt. I knew a lot of lefties who were being persecuted. Oddly, the communists I knew were more accepting of my being gay than anyone else. Even though they didn't believe in you, they weren't in favor of being gay. Like my teacher, Robert Friend, who taught me how to write poetry, he left because they didn't approve of him being gay. Communist Party? Yeah. And, uh, but he never was totally hostile to it because they were also in favor of him being a poet. You told me something before we started the interview, which I found fascinating. Do you want to describe the difference in being seen as a gay man versus the difference in being seen as a Jew? Oh, yes. Uh, one of the things about New York was that it was always a Jewish-friendly city, even though there was discrimination in jobs. Job listings in the New York Times said Christian only. So most of the jobs I would go for, employment agent would say over the phone, I've got a very clean-cut young man here. And 
they said, is he Jewish, meaning clean cut meant circumcised. Right. And uh, so I wouldn't get the job. It was very hard to get a job in New York. And where I grew up was very anti-Semitic. I'd never experienced homophobia, except people saying, you know, faggot. They didn't say faggot. They said other words. Fairy. But I never got discriminated. So it wasn't against. personally directed at you. No, in the same and way that anti-Semitism was. Anti-Semitism was much more serious. Right. I always had to deal with anti-Semitism. Whereas being gay, you could live in New York as a gay man. Of course, you could live in New York as a Jew also. But you couldn't get a job in oil companies and banks. There were certain, even in advertising agencies, I had trouble getting a job. So it was. Um, being a Jew was always much more of a problem, though being a homosexual was also a problem. How did gay life change throughout that decade, the 50s? Uh, well, New York was so gay-friendly. When I was in, um, in Europe flying around, I used to go to London frequently of my courier plane, and I used to go to the White Room, a gay club in Soho, and there was American... GIs there who told me where to go in New York for the gay life. And they told me bars, gay bars, gay restaurants. And they told me the East 50s was the gay center. Of course, the village was always the gayest, but uptown, all the young actors were moving into the East 50s. It was very cheap, a rundown boarding houses and things. And so I did go there, and I got to know a lot of gay people, and I saw how gay people lived. Every gay guy I met had a sewing machine, so they could run up drapes, and because <laughs> you couldn't afford those things. I mean, most people. And there were all millions of actors trying to make it on Broadway. And so I myself finally experienced that, making the rounds and getting little gigs in summer theater. I played very wonderful roles. And then what ended my theater career was meeting Neil. That was in 1959. My acting teacher said, do you want to be an actor? Learn to type, because you could always get a temporary typing job, which allowed you to make the rounds. So I went out as a typist, and one day I was in an advertising agency typing away at my station and the supervisor brought over a young man and sat him down next to me and said, I think you two guys will get along. Was that code for being gay? I don't know. I met Neil and we started talking together and in no time we were a couple. I had just passed an audition for a singing role in Of The I Sing, a Gershwin musical that was going to play for the summer in Smithtown, Long Island. And I would have to go away to Smithtown for the summer when I had just met the love of my life. So I dropped out. And that's when you basically... That was the end of my theater career. And with Neil, I had an entirely different life. So I'm going to... Uh bring this to a close now so that we stay within our time limit, but um, I will let our audience know that that would begin what ended up being a 58-year partnership, and we'll talk in some detail about 
the twists and turns in that partnership in our next interview. But I do want to let them know something about you, which may not be apparent just from your voice. Edward is 95. Unlike most of the people I know who reach 90 and above, he doesn't use a walker. Uh, he's not in a wheelchair. He's very ambulatory. And he has a, I call it a treadmill. What is it? I, exercise. An exercise in his apartment and works out every day and does yoga. And weights. And weights. And more impressive than anything, when we first met in his apartment a couple of months ago, Edward took us over and showed us a, a picture of Neil in his late teens. And what did you tell me then? I whack off to that picture to this day. On an almost daily basis. In fact, when he was, he was blind at, for many years, and uh, he couldn't see me. And I would follow him around whacking off in this apartment. <laughs> and I thought he had the most gorgeous ass of any man I ever had. And the reason I'm sharing this and wanting to make yeah. sure this gets heard is that, you know, young people should understand that sexuality is something that lasts an entire lifetime and that they should hope that they're lucky enough to live as long and be as comfortable in their bodies as you have and still continue to have sex at this point in a very long and illustrious life. So as I said to you when I first met you, if I live as long as you, I want to be you. And my advice to all young people is never forget your dick. It's your greatest friend and will be with you to the end. On that note, Edward, thank you for this second episode. I look forward to continuing it again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening. This episode of Bammer was produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more interviews and stories, please visit bammer.co.